Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Five years after Detroit's historic bankruptcy, what is better for the city and its residents? And what's worse? We're going to spend the hour today talking about what has changed and what the city's future prospects look like. And we want to hear from you. The Detroit's efforts to reorganize its debts push the city in the right direction. We'll discuss it all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined. It's hard to believe it's been this long, but it's true. Five years ago this week, Detroit exited the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. The deal that allowed the city to move on had turned about $18 billion in debt into around $12 billion. It promised lower debt payments, more money for city services, and tougher times for retirees whose pension and health care benefits took serious hits. Five years out, some things are better financially, while others are still challenging us here in Detroit. We want to spend the hour today talking about where the city is post-bankruptcy, and even whether the prospect of more financial trouble could send us back down that road. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think of the state of the city of Detroit five years after the bankruptcy? Are things better? Are things better in your neighborhood, in your community? Or are things the same or maybe worse? And you're sitting around wondering what all of that was for. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or go to Twitter, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation if you make comments there. Again, especially we want to hear this hour from folks who live in the city of Detroit, but also those who may be working here or are just part of the larger community. What do you think uh, about where we are five years after the bankruptcy? And we want to start the conversation with the man who led the city through bankruptcy court, former emergency manager Kevin Orr. Kevin, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me to join. Yes. So uh, let's start with uh, let's start with when you left Detroit five years ago and the things that you said we needed to do to make sure that we could take advantage of the things that happened in bankruptcy. Uh, where do you assess we are on that list? And do you, do you still believe that all of the things that uh, were done at that time put us on a path to be in, in better financial shape? Well, I do. I mean, Stephen, if you look at the objective criteria, what we said was that we'd have to be able to meet and maintain some level of fiscal discipline, which the city is doing. Um, it emerged from financial oversight actually early. If you look at other examples, whether it was in the 70s in New York City, the Municipal uh, uh, Assistance Corporation, or in the 80s in Miami or 90s here in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Control Board, it took a number of years before those cities were able to emerge from sort of fiscal oversight, either at the state or higher level. Um, Detroit was able to do that within the first four years. So, one, it restored 
the regular order back to governance um, in the city. Two, the financial projections that were contained within the plan were met early in terms of the forecasting and the ability of the city to have liquidity uh, to push out services. And then number three, some of the more obvious aspects of it um, are displayed in the central business district, CBD. The city is going through, at least in the urban core, um, a renaissance and develop, obviously, as with those other examples, whether it be New York, Miami, or D.C., it takes a longer time for some of that renaissance to work its way out into the neighborhoods, which I understand um, is one of the ongoing discussions to your introduction, for instance, for a lot of people. Um, the question may be, well, when does it when does it impact me? But as far as what the plan was designed to do, it achieved those goals, um, frankly, early and is trending in the right direction. Mm. Uh, when you were here, you faced a lot of criticism for some of the decisions that you made. The bankruptcy itself was criticized by a lot of people because it didn't fix the kind of problems that we've had for, for many decades in Detroit that weren't related to finances. But I, but I wonder if you look back at the time you spent here and the things that you did, are there things that you might have done differently knowing now, five years later, how everything turned out? No, not really. I mean, looking back, I might have done some of the things that I did earlier. I was very concerned upon coming into the city of restoring a sense of calm. People have forgotten the uh, third or fourth day after my appointment was, the, the day of my appointment was three or four days out from the conviction of the prior mayor, Mayor Patrick, mm-hmm. uh, who was sentenced to 28 years. So the city was on, on tender hooks, if you will, at that time. And I was very much concerned that effort not be defined by any form of, of civil unrest or civil concern. And that did not happen. But one of the things, just by way of example, is I, I waited for a while um, until I went back to the governor, Governor Snyder, and proposed that the deal that was put before the city council for Belle Isle uh, be reissued. Um, I did that because I recognized that Belle Isle had a long history, um, had a downtown air to it. I, I was very sensitive to the prior discriminatory behavior that occurred, but we wanted to clean it up. Um, the toilets weren't working. The facilities, whether it be the casino, the boathouse, the yacht club, people didn't even realize there was a golf course on the north end, a nine-hole golf course because it was overdrawn, not to mention the bathrooms. So we wanted to to show to the city that we could provide some benefit. The other thing is, from a balance sheet standpoint, it was costing the city $6 million a year to maintain Bell Island. It had, charitably, somewhere in the neighborhood of about $20, $25 million in unpaid and unanticipated capital improvement necessary. So that deal not only helped clean the island up, but the state, DNR, actually took over the capital requirements, which were significant um, in repairing all of those facilities. And I know some people uh, may not think of this, Bell Isle was actually an international venue to the extent that Roger Pinsky would have the uh, Grand Prix every year, bringing in visitors from around the world. So we wanted to have a, a marquee facility with the beach open, the place clean, looking nice, more importantly for the residents, deleverage the balance sheet. So that obligation, that $6 million in operating fund was available to the city, and that $20-plus million in capital requirements were not going to be put back on the city's balance sheet. So looking back on it, some of the things that I, I delayed for a period, if you may recall, Stephen, there was a lot of criticism, in fact, on when will, when will you know the emergency management process get going, there was a reason why it took a little bit of time. So, no, I don't, I don't look back on anything 
I would have done differently. I may have done some things a lot quicker. Hmm. Uh, so, so Belle Isle is a really good example of, I think, a tension that exists whenever you talk about the things that we've done here with bankruptcy, reorganizing debt, stabilizing finances, and, and you, you point out the upsides of having done what we did on Belle Isle to, to try to relieve the city of some of the capital obligations and, and some of the other things. But at the same time, a lot of folks who live in the city are unhappy still with the way that turns out, right? So now we have state police patrolling Belle Isle and enforcing the law in a different way than Detroit cops used to. The the Grand Prix that you point out uh, brings people from all over the world to Detroit for that race, also displaces Detroiters for uh, what seems like a longer period of time each year as they prepare for the race and block it off and then uh, slowly take it down. Uh, I think a lot of Detroiters feel unwelcome on places like Belle Isle now in ways that they didn't before. So while the financial picture is better, the quality of life for Detroiters, a lot of Detroiters at least, they would say is not quite as good. How do you address that kind of criticism of the bankruptcy process and this idea of you know, uh, financial austerity as a way of trying to restore financial health to a city? Right. Well, three things, Stephen. One, let's take them in order. I wouldn't call it financial austerity because the option, the alternative was a full-fledged unrestrained crisis. I mean, we had already reached a point where 45 minutes for ambulances to come, tier one police calls were not being answered within an hour. What 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 option would have been what should have been an hour and a half mm-hmm. um, that people wouldn't have gotten that? Should Bell Al have literally literally um, in the boathouse? Should the piers be crumbling into the water and the foundation crack so that it was now dilapidated and unusable? So you have to look at it from a standpoint of optionality and what the alternatives would have been. Number two, I, I'm I am sure, and I take your your comment at face value, that there are Detroiters that are unhappy, but I also hear from Detroiters that are very happy. I hear Detroiters when I walk through airports. I I met one yesterday at an event who had gone to UDC and and shook my hand and said, thank you so much. Hmm. I hear that there's going to be a training institute out for kids, and it's wonderful. And more importantly, this is is why I raised Bill Isle, um, he said, you know, I kind of take my kids out there to teach them how to ride a bike. There was drag racing. There was pot smoking. Um, it was actually um, unfair for us. I now can go out, and it's pristine, and we're restoring some of the aquarium and other areas. So I hear from a lot of people, number two, who think that it's actually actually better. Number three, I am sensitive to the fact that a lot of people feel that they've been left out from the effort, and that has been a sentiment that we hear, and you know this well, Stephen, because you've been here. We here in D.C. now almost, well, almost 25 years out from mm-hmm. the D.C. Control Board, are experiencing as we go through other parts of the city, Shaw, UDC, Sirsum, Corda, uh, Florida Avenue, that are now thriving in one sense, but by the same sense, there's a huge discussion about long-term residents who've been here holding the line, feeling that that economic growth, development, and progress is leaving them behind. I can go through uh, the country. I can go to Portrero Hills in San Francisco. I can go down to Liberty City, Culmer, Overtime, Overtown in my hometown of Miami. I can go up to the Hill in Atlanta. I, I can literally, south side of Chicago, goodness gracious, mm-hmm. uh, over the Gary, we've seen a, a lot of that concerns. I can go literally by city by city and see the same issues. 
I, I personally think that that should be part of a broader national discussion. I think there should be an urban policy conference. I don't know if that's going to happen in, in the current environment. We need to have a broader discussion because I do see that part of the issues that are being raised nationwide, not just in Detroit, um, you can certainly talk about some challenges coming over in Brooklyn, which is having great loss to some of the residents feel that they're not having access in the richest city in the country, uh, New York. I feel that some of these problems need to be addressed and discussed at a broader level. But as far as what the plan was designed to do, which is restore the balance sheet, provide uh, city governance with an opportunity uh, to re-engage, reinvest, and reinvent, and deleverage that balance sheet of some grievous debt, which we could never have paid and would have accelerated the decline of the city, the plan achieved those goals. Um, the goals of broader urban renewal, inclusiveness, social justice, social equity, a uh, number of issues, which as a liberal Democrat as I am are close to my heart, those have a much broader context and, and should be subjects of a much broader discussion. I'm talking with Kevin Orr, a partner in charge of the Jones Day Law Firm in Washington. He is the former emergency manager of Detroit, the person who led the city through the largest municipal bankruptcy in history. We're talking about the fact that this is five years. This week marks five years since we exited that bankruptcy. We're talking about what is better in the city of Detroit, what's working uh, because of the bankruptcy and the reduction of debt, the reduction of debt payments that the city was making, and what still needs to be done. What things in the city do we still need to turn to to make it a better place for the folks who live here? Uh, we want to hear from you uh, about what you think about the bankruptcy five years out. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also uh, comment on Facebook and on Twitter. We'll try to work you into the conversation here. Let's start with Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning, Stephen. I'd like to ask your guest what he thinks would be it would be the effect of the $250 million bond that were proposed uh, should that uh, come back and pass, hmm. and why the Financial Review Commission continues to exercise some form of oversight over the city uh, in contravention of the uh, grand bargain three years after uh, Balanced budgets. Hmm. Uh, Gene, great questions. Uh, Kevin Orr, I don't know how much you keep up with the news here in Detroit, but uh, you may have heard that uh, Mayor Mike Duggan wants to sell $250 million worth of bonds to continue the demolitions that are taking place in the city. That We've been using federal money for that. He'd like to, to use local money because uh, there's a little more flexibility in terms of where you could spend that money. Uh, but I think what Gene's asking is about the effect of that borrowing on the the plans that you put put together for the bankruptcy. Are we are we ready again to get into that kind of uh, indebtedness? Well, I, I think the city council spoke to that two weeks ago when they, uh, they said no, they engage and they said no. Um, and they said they had some additional questions, and no may not be a permanent no, but it might be we need to have these questions answered regarding capacity plans and what's going on. So I'm going to stay away from the politics of the issuance, but I think the process worked. And I understand, on, on the other hand, though, in all fairness to the administration, the desire to remove dilapidated houses and, and demolish them is obvious. Um, not only is it an eyesore, it's a public safety issue, not just crime, arson, 
and a bunch of other things. So the motivation is the right motivation. Whether or not the vehicle works is the spokes has been spoken by the city council. They addressed it. Um, the, the real driver of this, of course, is that the federal money, some of which was returning TARP money, the Troubled Assets Relief Program money that came out in 2008, is dried up. Mm-hmm. So a source of, of NSP, Neighborhood Stabilization, Section 108 um, funds that could be reprogrammed, uh, urban development grants, uh, things like that, previously available, has gone away. So there is a need for resources, and I, I'm, I'm going to defer to the, to the administration and the city council to figure out if that's the right thing to do. The other thing I think, I think Gene you know, spoke about um, is, is really uh, a concern, but I, I would say this. One of the, the processes that we went through in the city was looking at public safety. If you went back and looked at the uh, CAFR, which is the Consolidated Annual Financial Report of the city, at that time we came in, about two-thirds of the city budget was really focused on public safety, police, EMT, right. and fires. Um, and public safety was a concern and should have been addressed to national standards, which it has. One of the things we did was, was to hire a new police chief, which is has engaged, and certainly public safety indicators um, have have gotten better. That being said, I do try to stay informed, Steve, even, Stephen, even if I'm not there. There are still incidences, a shooting just last week at a convenience store. So, so these challenges, the, the plan in terms of giving the city the opportunity to have the liquidity, the breathing room, the optionality that it needed to progress forward, achieve those goals. Exercising those goals in the ordinary state in today's urban environment um, around the nation continues to be a challenge. Um, and there's, there's no plan that can address conduct, stress, unemployment, educational needs, health care. I just came from a meeting in philanthropy today. 80% of philanthropy today is, is focused at health care and education. Um, which are huge drivers in, in most environments. So those issues are, are broader issues. We still need to be addressed. But as as far as being concerned about the need to eliminate blight and the funding for it, I I see both sides of that. There is a need. It just needs to be done in the right way. So so, uh, but but as the person who who set up the sort of financial framework for the city going forward, I think uh, I'd love to hear you talk about this idea of borrowing, which which we wouldn't have been able to do, frankly, if not for the bankruptcy. And, and certainly right before the bankruptcy, we were at a point where we really couldn't borrow another nickel anywhere. So in one way, it's a sign of progress that we're able to go to the market and and borrow money the, the, the way other other cities do. But I wonder if you if you think the impact of that on this, the, the plan to keep the city's finances stable uh, is 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 the best idea? Well, here's here's what I think, Stephen. Two things. One, I'm going to stay out of the politics. So thank you for the invitation, but I'm going to have to decline. Okay, I got to <laughs> ask the question. You got. I know you got. Hey, you're doing your job and you're good at it. So I I, I love you to death. But I'm going to stay away from that. Um, but number two, I, I am gratified that the city had capacity to raise the issue and could have brought it out. Um, that's that's pro- that is progress. Whether or not it should be done, it's, I'm five years out. I'm not there. I'm not an elected official. And that's a debate that the legislature and the executive needs to go through to determine what's in the best interest of the, interest of the city. One of the good things about the plan is is restoring the regular order. That's the regular order. And so whether or not you know Washington, D.C. needs bike lanes 
and uh, wants to put in a provision for affordable housing now over almost 20 years out from the D.C. Control Board. That's the regular order, and they get to make those decisions. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, before I let you go, I, I want to have you address the idea of financial downturn, which is inevitable, of course, in the economy, and whether that could derail the things that we're doing here in Detroit. Was, was the situation strong enough when you left that we could weather a, a downturn? Uh, Moody's today, for instance, uh, came out and said that Detroit is weakest among major cities in terms of its positioning uh, in advance of the, the predicted downturn that we're going to have. Is that something that we should be worried about? Could send us back down the path that led us to bankruptcy in the first place? Well, two things. One, we're now 10 years out from the financial crisis of the ages, which uh, if people go back and look at, um, of, of course, there's financial stress without the capacity to adjust, just like a household budget. Um, those that have um, a layoff or jobs have changed, it hits harder. So when I saw that news report, and we did it in full, but I saw it briefly, I think we're all at risk of potential downturn. They usually occur somewhere between seven to ten years out, and we're overdue for a reinvestment. investment. How deep or far is tantamount to trying to catch a falling knife or boiling the ocean, and you, you really don't know. So, number one, I think that's a risk. But I don't know if I agree with with all assessments, but certainly city, which is still emerging. Remember, the plan had a ten-year term in terms of its forecast. We're about halfway through. So I, I think those risks are existential, and I think there's still to be of concern, too. The other thing I would say is um, all parties involved, meaning city governance, um, certainly the patrons of the city, um, employers, employees, should at some level, at, at least, I think it's prudent, um, having been involved in several financial crises. I, I worked at the RCC, Resolution Trust Corporation, during the savings and loan crisis, I then went on to investigate a, a president, Bill Clinton, uh, when I was at, at uh, the RTC in terms of Whitewater. Um, I moved from the DOJ, went through a number of crises, Bear Stern, WAMU, Indemac, uh, Lehman Brothers, and was involved in the Chrysler bankruptcy as the head of one of the dealer teams. And then I came to Detroit. Financial crises are episodic. There's a certain rhythm to them. They will come and go. The real issue is, is there any sobriety, both in terms of management and financial discipline, to adjust and absorb them, and a plan, a strategic plan, for how you're going to emerge from them? Some of them, Chrysler, for instance, uh, had a strategic plan, and Sergio, about rest his soul, uh, Marchione, who restructured the company, and with a year of emerging, they had the uh, car of the year mm -hmm. in the Ram 1500. Um, it's the same sort of thought. So actually, in, in you know seven lean years, seven fat years, uh, in the Old Testament, and the seventh is supposed to be the Jubilee year uh, originally. So, and it's funny that those patterns track themselves even in modern modern uh, economic history. What what I think all parties need to do, even at the national level, is assume that that adjust and provide enough elasticity. So I think the city does have that, but to try to develop a plan for how do we get out of space when if it occurs. If you do, you 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 can't control the economic rhythm of nations and patterns. Financial crises have been happening since the 1632 tulip bulb crisis uh, over in, in, in the Dutch, where tulips actually were from Turkey, 
but they ran up a price on them 40 times cost until people finally realized that, hey, we can grow more. We don't have to buy these. So, so financial crises have been going on for millennia. The real issue is, do you have the capacity to absorb them, which I think the city does, and two, do you have the sobriety of leadership and management to plan for them? And I hope the city certainly does so it can emerge. Okay, Kevin Orr, partner in charge of the Jones Day Law Firm in Washington and former emergency manager here in the city of Detroit. Always great to talk with you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Stephen, for reaching out to me, and and best of luck to everyone. Yeah, all right. We're going to continue our conversation next about the Detroit bankruptcy five years out. We're going to talk with the CFO of the city of Detroit about how the finances look up close. A little later in the show, we are going to talk with a pensioner, the woman who led the pensioners through the bankruptcy, and someone who says that the bankruptcy didn't really address the primary problems that we have here in the city of Detroit. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313. 1019 We'll be back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. Today we are talking about this week marking the fifth anniversary of Detroit's exit from the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. We talked earlier with Kevin Orr, the man who led the city through the bankruptcy. Now we want to talk with someone who has been a little more up close with what's going on in the city financially lately. Dave Masseron is the chief financial officer for the city of Detroit. Dave, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah. So you heard Kevin Orr talk about the way he thought of setting up the city for post-bankruptcy success. Uh, Give us an idea of how well that has worked over the last five years and where we are right now with the idea of having more money to spend on things like city services and less money to have to give over to debt. Um, Well, Stephen, I appreciate the opportunity to... uh to address that, I think, you know, from the broad space of where we were um, prior to bankruptcy and where we are now, the city has made a tremendous amount of progress. Um, when people talk about the bankruptcy, they often focus on the balance sheet, which makes sense because it's a bankruptcy. But ultimately, the trouble the city got into was really driven in large part by a servant's insolvency, meaning that it was unable to provide basic services, which resulted in an erosion of its tax base. What the bankruptcy allowed the city to do was make necessary investments to bring our city services up to at least a baseline of what people who live and do business in the city should expect. And we've made a lot of progress um, towards improving those services, and we still have a long way to go. Um, One of the things I would like to touch on that uh, Kevin, uh, who it was good to hear his voice again, um, raised was that we are um, five years into what is supposed to be a 10-year journey, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work left to do, and a lot of work left to do with our own financial stability. You know, the plan of adjustment itself assumed in 2024 we would be putting $110 million into our pensions, and now it looks like at a minimum it will be $162 million and, and likely m- much higher than that. So the city itself um, in this journey leading to that date in which we have to start making pension payments going forward has had to set aside um, and has had to plan to set aside over $300 million of money that was supposed to be invested in city services, but rather are set aside for 
making sure we can meet our long-term obligations. And that has meant that we are more fiscally solvent and we are more able to withstand a future uh, economic contraction, but it has also meant that we've had less to invest than we otherwise would have. Yeah, and and that tension plays out in people's lives and the way that they experience the city. And one of the things that I hear a lot is that public safety, for instance, has not experienced the kind of investment that perhaps we would like for it to have in order for the city to feel safer for people who live here. We still lag behind lots of other cities in terms of the way that we pay police officers, for instance. We still have far too few officers patrolling the streets. But as you point out, there is this this idea that, look, you've got to prepare for long-term obligations that, that will not go away. And if you don't, uh, you'll be back in, in financial hot water. Yeah. So, Stephen, I'll, I'll start with preparing for the long term. I mean, when we talk about the grand bargain, we often give praise, which we should, to a number of foundations and others that contributed to the city's exit from bankruptcy. But the largest contributor to uh, the city's exit from bankruptcy were retirees. And we can't go back to the well and ask them to do it again. So we have to keep in mind that they gave more, they sacrificed more than any other group. So part of our, our long-term plan needs to make sure that we can keep them uh, where they ended up. With respect to police investments, we have opened, uh, reopened police contracts before they expired two times to give additional funding both to first-year officers and to overall pay. We've made a number of changes to increase uh, funding and the number of positions there. One of the things that we've had to be very conscious about is the speed and pace at which we hire officers um, to do two things. One is the police department uh, under the chief's leadership needs to reflect the city uh, in which it, the, those police officers work. So we need to make sure that when we do our hiring, we are conscious about doing that. And, and that also means that the pace at which we hire hasn't been as quick as we would like. Now, part of that is compensation, but part of that is also finding a candidate pool and working to reach that candidate pool. The mayor has recently announced with the chief uh, a massive marketing campaign in the city designed to try to get people to uh, apply for what is a really good job that pays well and gives you an opportunity to serve your community. Um, there have been these major investments in police fleet, meaning they all have new vehicles, police equipment, technology, a number of different strategies to try to drive down crime. But there is certainly a long way to go. Um, and there are certainly going to be further investment. The police budget today is higher than it was when we exited bankruptcy and will continue to be the place where most of the discretionary investment is made by city policymakers. Mm. Uh, and let's talk about pensions, long-term obligations. That was one of the fears that I think a lot of people had as we came out of bankruptcy was that 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 reorganization of that debt was still going to encumber too much of, of the city's resources going forward and that we might not keep pace. You're saying that that we're in better shape than we might have imagined five years ago. Yeah. When we exited bankruptcy, I think that one of the things that was the biggest risk of the plan of adjustment was the uh, basically the city has a general fund pension holiday where it's not making payments today into the pension system. And then it, the, the payments basically in a plan of adjustment kind of exploded to $110 million. Immediately after bankruptcy, we discovered that the uh, assumptions that were put into the restructuring of the pension plans were incorrect and that the number was even larger. So city council and the mayor, in a way that is actually uh, speaks to uh, the tremendous fiscal responsibility policymakers 
have exercised in building our budgets created a fund where they're planning on putting in $335 million to meet an obligation that is eight years away when they initially did it. And if you think about the general idea of our policymakers across the country, there aren't many that will decide not to have an immediate gratification of an investment in order to make sure that a city has long-term financial stability. And that's something that I think we all should be proud of, that they made this investment. But that number likely over the next few years, that $335 million, will need to increase because, again, the plan of adjustment assumed we'd earn 6.75%. Uh, we didn't earn that last year. I don't think many people did. It was a tough year, uh, up and down year, I guess, on the market. Um, and we're going to have to continue to work on that. That is, I think, probably the biggest risk to the city going forward. And And, and what I always say is, the city is well positioned to meet the risks of the future. It is well positioned to make its long-term obligations. The question is, will the policymakers, the mayor and city council, stay aligned around the new budgeting policies that Kevin Orr left us with? Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Dave Masseron, who is the CFO of the city of Detroit. We're talking about this week, marking the fifth anniversary of Detroit exiting the largest municipal bankruptcy in history. What's better? What's worse? What's the same? What are the prospects for the city going forward in terms of its finances? Will they be stable or could we get back into financial trouble? As always, we want to hear from you. What do you think of the job the city is doing today, five years after Detroit emerged from bankruptcy? How do you think Detroit is doing now? And has the city's revitalization given you hope for Detroit's future or are you skeptical about how far it will reach. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. <clears throat> you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Dave, I want to talk to you a little about <clears throat> what Moody's Investor Service came out with uh, in its report. It said, Detroit is among the weakest of the country's 25 largest cities in being prepared for a financial downturn. Uh, that's not good news, but put it in, in some context uh, with regard to the, the bankruptcy that we went through, the plan of adjustment, and all of the kinds of things that you guys have been trying to do to make things more stable. Yeah, I, I think I'd start with it. it. It probably shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that a city went through bankruptcy Uh just five years ago, uh, is in a weak financial position. That is any company, any entity that goes into bankruptcy. But what the city has done uh, is really focus on building long-term plans and looking at its obligations over a 10-year horizon. One of the things that was so gratifying to me uh, in the position I sit is last year, this current budget year, we adopted a budget for the first time without state active oversight. And the next day, Moody's released a report that said Detroit continues its path toward financial stability. And in that budget, the city council and the mayor nearly doubled the rainy day fund to prepare for that economic recession. Um, the city every day is making really it's it's two different types of investment the city needs to make. The first is it needs to invest in services to make this an attractive place to live so that our population is stable and growing and our tax base is therefore stable and growing. And the second is to prepare for and set aside funds and plan for uh, the eventual economic contraction that we all know is coming. Uh, the plan, it's, the Moody's report itself gave some good news. It, it, we, you know, Obviously, in a bankruptcy, we weren't able to withstand a recession. That plan has us just on the edge from becoming moderate, where right now we're in the weakest. If you took out 
um, an optional redemption we did of our debt, I know this is getting a little technical, we would have actually been into that moderate uh, category on the overall matrix uh, through which Moody scored us. So from our standpoint, we're making progress and we're getting closer and closer to being in that position where we can withstand uh, an economic contraction. Mm. And at the same time, one of the things that speaks to the city's financial health <clears throat> is the ability to go back to the market and borrow this proposal to borrow $250 million or sell $250 million worth of bonds to continue demolition, even though it's politically controversial and there's a lot of questions that, that city council and others have about the plan itself, the fact that we're able to do it is testament to the idea that we're we're headed back to some normalcy, right? Yeah, uh- Almost every city in America, every government in America funds its long-term capital uh, through debt, just as every, uh, nearly everybody who buys a house funds its, the purchase of that house through debt. You don't pay all up front. And the city went to the market in December of last year, and that transaction was what's called oversubscribed, which means we had more investors wanting to buy our debt than we had debt to sell. And that suggests that, at least on Wall Street and in the investor community, people have confidence in our ability to weather a storm and to be um, you know, fiscally sustainable for the long-term period. Yeah. Uh, so looking at the next five years, the last five years of the plan of adjustment, what are the, the sort of key markers you, that you have in your mind about things we've got to make sure happen so that uh, 2024 comes and we're not talking about extreme financial measures again? Um, the city has to continue down the path of doing 10-year projections and setting aside for its long-term obligations. The city needs to continue to make investments in its workforce, in its uh, transportation services and other services to make the city a place where opportunity is available for its population. At the end of the day, we need to provide opportunity to the residents of the city so that they can improve their lives, their earning potential, which ends up improving our tax base. Uh, And the third thing really is the policymakers need to stay aligned around um, thinking long-term and investing in a way that's smart uh, and provides more efficient services. If we're able to do all of those things, I think 2024 comes and we'll be in a position to meet that pension and debt obligation that spikes in those years. Okay. Dave Masseron, CFO of the City of Detroit. It's great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, Stephen. All right. Up next, we're going to look at how pensioners are dealing with life five years after the bankruptcy. And we're going to talk with someone who says that the bankruptcy doesn't address the primary problems that we face as Detroiters right now. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about the fifth anniversary of Detroit's exit from the largest municipal bankruptcy in history. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of the state of the city right now? Let's talk about city services, what they look like for you. What do you think about opportunity in the city of Detroit? Is that different because of the bankruptcy? Is it better? 
or is it worse? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to include you in the conversation. And we want to welcome two more voices to this conversation as well. Shirley Lightsey is the former president of the Detroit Retired City Employees Association. She led the pensioners through the bankruptcy. Uh, Shirley, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Yeah. Nice being here. Mm-hmm. Also with us is Peter Hammer. He's a professor of law and director of the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights at Wayne State University Law School. Peter wrote uh, what would be best described, I think, as a treatise near the end of the bankruptcy about all of the things that he thought could be addressed to improve the lives of Detroiters and attack some of our core problems uh, that weren't part of the bankruptcy discussions. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Happy to be here, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Shirley, I'm going to st- I'm going to start with you, and I want you to give us just a thumbnail of how you think things are going for pensioners now, given the sacrifices that you decided to make to help the city exit bankruptcy five years ago. Well, for those who had low pensions uh, because of age and lower salaries and pension dates. Uh, it probably caused uh, a lot of turmoil in their lives. For those who were hit about 3,700 with a a clawback, it affected their money that they thought was there and safe and uh, are very resentful. And some can afford to pay it but don't think it's right. And we all have wrestled with that because it's something that we didn't know anything about and didn't expect. We knew that uh, medical was going to go up. I mean, that was obvious. So we were aware of some of those things. And because of the situation of the budget uh, for the city of Detroit, we knew that they were having problems with the medical and um, with their budgets and how they were planning and the things that they couldn't do because they didn't have money. So we were aware of that. But that 36, 3,700 that had to deal with the clawback, they're the ones, I think, who are the maddest, mm. and uh, rightfully so because uh, they didn't understand it. I can't really say that I understood it, but we didn't really have any options. It was there, and we had to deal with it when it was brought to our attention. So um, there are those who have gone past and don't talk about it anymore. There are those who are still mad and organized to be mad mm-hmm. and whatever, which is their right. Uh, but it is what it is. And after the bankruptcy, seeing what happened and seeing the insurgent of new growth, it um, I can't really explain it. You're happy in one way to see it happening, but you know the sacrifices that had to be made that by one made. group of people. Yeah. right? And so it's a mixed emotion, but we had to do what we had to do mm-hmm. because uh, if we hadn't, we would really have been a lot worse off, which people don't understand. They thought there was money somewhere. There wasn't any money, and we couldn't give up over $800 million of the grand bargain to to help with the cost. And, you know, the 4.5 is the pension. Right. The cost of living is something that they could take away. Some people never heard of a cost of living, you know. Right, the adjustments. Right, and then, uh, you know, it's it's just a – it was a very unfortunate – 
we were in a, yeah. there in you a very, were in a very unfortunate time. position and 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 all of the pensioners when they voted mm-hmm. voted to to make a sacrifice to help uh, to help the rest of the city right. uh, uh, peter hammer i want to i want to have you talk about uh, essentially your ask of judge rhodes at the end of the bankruptcy as we were putting this plan of adjustment together to help the city go forward you raised a number of issues that weren't part of the bankruptcy, but that you said the city had an opportunity to focus on that would really change life for the quality of life for Detroiters. Uh, talk about what you wrote in that uh, in that document. Sure, and, and um, it takes us to start looking at things through new lens and new frames, right? So at the Key Center for Civil Rights, uh, our main claim is you have to look at all the issues affecting the city of Detroit through the lens of, of structural racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look through the lens of spatial structural racism, you'll find that that really lies at the heart of what caused the bankruptcy uh, and lies at the heart of what are the policies necessary to move the city forward. Uh, and that's not an off-the-shelf problem. Uh, and the point I did in the letter to Judge Rhodes was to say, your bankruptcy plan of adjustment, even all of our traditional economic modeling, uh, is off-the-shelf thinking, and we need to have brand-new thinking. Uh, and I would say, sadly, uh, both the bankruptcy plan of adjustment, uh, the diagnosis of what caused the bankruptcy, and the policies leading afterwards uh, are simply going to be reproducing the types of economic inequality within the city and within the region uh, that created the bankruptcy in the first place. Uh, and if you put the fact that all of the so-called recovery has happened in the context of a national recovery uh, of unprecedented length, uh, it's very sort of, of, of a fragile foundation that we're standing on in the city of Detroit. Uh, and that may not be a popular thing to say, uh, but if you care about racial equity, I think you have to talk about the truth. Mm. So, so give us some examples, Peter, of things that you thought we could have done or focused on that would, that would attack those, those, uh, structural, uh, those structurally racist uh, institutions and, and uh, patterns that caused the bankruptcy. Sure. And first is you need a, a proper analysis. But I'm going to put that aside because I think I've, I've sort of suggest what that analysis would look like. If you were to say, well, what would be the kind of economic policies and priorities? And I think that's the level we have to start with uh, that should frame where we're putting uh, a scarce public funds. Uh, and if you do an international scan, uh, you would identify three specific areas that should be primary in terms of where the city investment should go or what causes long-term economic growth. Uh, the first is basically investing in, in human capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a very different concept than, than, than human uh, capital. Yes. Uh, and it means you're investing in, in the lifetime learning of Detroiters. Second, what you're trying to do is fight uh, economic inequality, uh, because inequality is associated with low growth. Uh, economic equality is associated with greater growth. So what would be the policies would start to get to the roots of the economic inequality? Uh, and third and most importantly, and this is why I was told I was not uh, ultimately retained by the judge to, to do the assessment, uh, if you really want long-term economic growth, you have to maintain uh, both uh, economic inclusion and political inclusion. Uh, and this is where the civil rights agenda starts to map on the economic development agenda, and emergency management prohibits any kind of political participation or inclusion. And I would say most of the development policies that we've adopted post-bankruptcy don't invite average Detroiters, uh, black-owned businesses, to be part of the process. Uh, and their exclusion itself is going to be part of the cycle that perpetuates the kind of inequalities that produced the bankruptcy in the first place. Mm. And the, the bankruptcy process was not was not focused on the things that you're talking about. That's why you wrote the letter. Judge Rhodes' uh, response to you really was that these were not these were not 
things that were part of the bankruptcy process and from a legal standpoint. But but talk about what you think the opportunity might be now to be able to deal with these things outside the auspices of the court or a bankruptcy. How are we doing with turning the conversation to these things now? Yeah. So if I could push back a little bit, there was there was one narrow wedge where these fit into the bankruptcy, and that was the assessment of the feasibility of the, the feasibility line right. of adjustment. Yes. Uh, and so that's where this letter was targeted. And I would argue that's where the law would permit this to happen. Uh, but I want to turn to your question because it's more important. Um, you need a substantial reorientation about uh, who matters in Detroit. Uh, and I would lift up the work of the Detroit People's Platform and how they center uh, analysis of policies and priorities in the context of a majority black Detroit. Uh, and if we start doing that, we're saying, well, what's the state of the public schools? Uh, and the Sixth Circuit is, is, is arguing now whether or not the schools are in such bad shape that uh, 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 it constitutes violation. That violates civil rights. Violation. Yeah, right. Um, and you have to immediately juxtapose. The minute you talk about post-bankruptcy and, and claims of rebirth, there's been another pattern that you trace back to, 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 to bankruptcy, uh, which is mass dis- uh, dis- displacement of Detroiters. There's been 100,000 water shutoffs in the city since bankruptcy. There's been 100,000 tax foreclosures since bankruptcy. So what you're seeing is a, a, a forcing out uh, of historic Detroiters. Uh, and if you look at some of the work Bridge Magazine done, is about who's gotten mortgages in the last uh, three years. Mm-hmm. You see majority white uh, uh, mortgage holders. So there's some deeper patterns, again, reflective of this history of spatial structural racism that says, if we're not fighting that directly and calling that out, which means, how do you make economic opportunity available to, to Detroiters? And that means you do development at a smaller scale than you're doing with the massive projects that are coming in. Uh, how do you start to, to build public transportation and get uh, uh, connectivity? Uh, how do you get the neighborhoods to be part of the same economy as the region? Because uh, some other analysis we've done really document how uh, the markets are not regional. The markets now in the neighborhoods are local, uh, and if you're not dealing with them as a development problem of a local market, not a regional market, again, you're going to be shooting at the wrong target. Uh, Shirley Lightsey, we've got about a minute left. Uh, I want to give you the last word about about bankruptcy and what it achieved, and and again, this idea of the effect on the people who served the city through their work for so many years, the, the, the sacrifice that you guys made. Well, it's difficult for me to say because I'm not involved in it as I was before mm-hmm. and during and five years ago. But everything that Peter just said hits he hits the nail on the head every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And I've watched neighborhoods that were in decline all of a sudden revitalized and just when he said non-minorities buying up the property. Okay, you can now go down West Chicago and see a mixed group of people walking up and down the street with their children and their dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just disheartening because the school system, he's right, the school system is just totally out of whack. And your children have graduated thinking they had a high school degree, go to fill out an application. They can read the words but don't understand what they say. When you see those types of things, you see... In the, in the trades, you don't have enough people finding jobs to c- complete their training. They can go to school and pass, but they don't have enough jobs right. you know, to, to maintain. So not a lot has changed, but hopefully with, with the redevelopment of downtown, it'll spread out and things will... Boy, we're still waiting. We're still waiting to see uh, Yes, we are. Yeah. Yes, okay. we are. Shirley Lightsey and Peter Hammer, it was really great to have both of you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.